All right, Galatians 5 says this. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. And a few verses later, since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. I want to talk about intentionality this morning and encourage us to, to be reflecting on some of the big basics like of, of life. Um, how do we really create change? I just want you to think about that. How do we really create change in our lives? We have so many different approaches to, to all of that. But I want you to think, when you, when you want to change something, how do you tend to go about doing it? Right? Some of you like put like, a checklist, you make like a checklist on your, on your phone or something and set new alarms, right? Um, sometimes you, uh, I don't know, decide, what was that, what was the woman who did all the, the decluttering, Marie Kondo? Something like that, yeah. So you start reading, reading the right books and, and, uh, and doing all, all of the steps that are involved. Um, sometimes you ask some people to like yell at you if you don't do it right, um, or you pay yourself, um, you know, $5 every time you, uh, I don't know, take out the trash. That would be really, that'd be good gig. I should actually embrace that one, make a lot of money in our house. But, but to be a disciple of Jesus is to be learning both the skills and the character of Jesus. That's the life change, learning both the skills and the character of Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes that if you trust Christ, you become, in, in his words, a new creation. Here's the problem. That is like enormous language, right? And most of us, if we've been journeying with Jesus for any amount of time, um, it's really hard to feel like new creations because that just feels like such big, broad, easy language. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And we're like, but, oh, like it's just really hard and it doesn't feel new all that, all that much. Um, and it just feels like, be, like doing a ton, ton of work. If by becoming new, what we mean is all of a sudden fixing everything that's wrong with us and overcoming all of our character flaws, of which I have many. I'm not sure about you, but I'm learning more. I think as the years go by, I don't understand how I feel like I have more character flaws now than I had when I was 20. I feel like I, I keep becoming more aware. Like the, the road to self-awareness is a challenging and rocky path. Um, but, but it's too many tasks to fix everything about us, right? Especially when we're told that the Christian life is supposed to be this life that's joyful and free. Uh, early on in the life of our church, maybe 10 years ago, someone came and became part of our community, and they said, and, and they were excited about being a part of our community because they had had some really difficult church experiences. I know none of you have, but they did. Uh, but anyways, one of the things that she asked me once, we were having a conversation over coffee, one of my favorite things to do, and she said, why are Christians literally the least free people I've ever met? Because isn't it supposed to be founded on something else? Like, why are they so, like, not free? They seem miserable. They seem so hung up on all the things that are not right with them and the world. And, and it just, it's not, it doesn't match what I, what I feel like I read in the New Testament about what it means to be in Christ. And so we had this conversation. Um, and, and, so here's, here's what I want to encourage us to start at this morning. It, what if a list of, of like self-help practices aren't actually the whole story of both life change and certainly of 
the Christian life? What if, what if what we really need is the right intentional starting point from which a transformed life naturally flows out of? Like, what if, what if like a Christian to-do list is really the wrong starting point overall to find the Jesus life? Um, you know, everything is connected to everything else in our lives, right? Like, like we, we love to think that we're compartmentalized people, but it's all connected. And you, one, one thing always affects the other. Don't try to convince yourself otherwise. I'm not, I'm not sure we'll ever fully grasp just how interconnected uh, and integrated our lives are. Um, I love this, this John Muir quote. It says, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. And, and this idea that, that we can't have these one parts of our lives that do this thing and, and not think that it's going to have an impact on something over here. Um, it can be good or bad, right? Like a stressful situation at home in the morning changes how the work day feels, right? Like it just changes. It doesn't matter if that exact same scenario, once you enter your work morning, is the exact same all day long. It becomes a bad, frustrating day if something else happened before it that has nothing to do with all the events of the workday, right? This, this is just what, what happens all the time, right? Everything just seems overwhelming. Or vice versa, an encouraging text from a friend at just a normal time, it becomes this catalyst for the next few hours for you to have a different outlook and, and feel different and then behave differently, even though the opportunities that you have actually had nothing to do with that moment of receiving a text message, but it changes. And so, so it, it has all of these, we're, we're these integrated people, but we can also introduce things into our lives intentionally that have a cascading effect and a cascading impact of sorts. I mentioned a few weeks when we were talking about gratitude and the impact of gratitude that we often take it as like a chore. We're supposed to be thankful because God told us to. But in reality, studies show that practices of gratitude have these effects like people sleeping better and, um, and eating healthier and having more energy when they have practices of intentional gratitude, right? Um, the same, same thing if you choose to start exercising. You might think that your goal, <clears throat> for example, is to lose weight, but then all of a sudden your mood improves and you have more energy and you're less anxious with your family members. Like there's all these cascading impacts of different choices that we can make in our lives. Um, I remember one day, several years ago, when I heard the findings of an experiment in 1995 that reintroduced wolves into the ecology of Yellowstone National Park. I don't know if you've heard about this. It's become a very, very well-known story. The elk population had become completely overwhelming, and so it was impacting <clears throat> things like trees and stuff like that, and the elk were just decimating uh, the, whole, the whole region. And so, um, so the, the scientists that were working and the environmentalists that were working with the park, they thought that wolves would help in introducing one single pack of wolves, maybe. They had no idea in just a few years what changes would actually be occurring. Um, the entire ecosystem became transformed. I was so captivated by the story, I want to sh actually share it with you. So it's like a five-minute video, and I just want you to just sit there. It's, it's better because the guy's got a British voice. Um, so I just want you to just take in this story. You're going to learn about something called a trophic cascade, and then you're going to see why I think it's super important for us in our understanding of discipleship.
One of the most exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years. That the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park. And despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to, to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes, and as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. Here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. Isn't that cool? So one small group of wolves changed the entire ecosystem. But here's, here's the interesting thing. 
the, the naturalists and, and the park rangers, they could have done so much work to try to enact these changes. They could have brought in more bunnies. They could have tried to plant a whole bunch. They could have tried to plant 100,000 trees along the rivers to, to give rootedness and stop erosion. And that's not at all what happened. They could have worked really, really hard. Instead, they introduced strategically one main starting point, and everything else flowed out of that. So how does this relate to our spirituality? First of all, many would-be disciples of Jesus lack intentionality with how we live out our Christian faith. And so what that means is that our spiritual ecosystems, like the elk, have just become like overrun with the wrong priorities. And so uh, religious activity like, can take over our lives and look, look great from the outside, but not actually lead to life transformation. Worries and anxieties can take a ton of our time and energy that could be better used elsewhere. Um, guilt and obligation, they eat away at joy and life. And, and we long for what Jesus said he came to bring in John 10 when he said, I came to bring life and life to the absolute fullest. So, so Jesus' goal is to help us experience a, a, a personal life that is teeming with energy and goodness even in the midst of the struggle and, and the painful realities of life, but that is tr so full of, of the, the truth of, of real life that it's transformative. So, so we look at the American church or American Christianity often, and it just does not look like a compelling life. It doesn't look like life to the fullest. It doesn't look very much like Jesus. And, and we realize that something needs rebalancing because our environment is off. A trophic cascade happens when a change is introduced in the top of the food chain. So when I think of Yellowstone, I see it as a parable for what Jesus invites us to experience because we will only experience life and our lives and our churches will only be transformed. Ready for my super deep take here? Ready for this? It's super profound. If we introduce Jesus day after day into the top of our personal food chain, and the top of our food chain is the human heart. Yeah, I just said that the big idea is that you should let Jesus into your heart. <laughs> right? Like the simplest, most overplayed, most misunderstood phrase ever in Christianity. Um, but, but here's the thing. For us, often when we think about this, the heart is this kind of nice little romantic sort of feeling center where you pray a prayer and mean it, and then Jesus lives in you, and Jesus is very small. Right? So he fits just perfectly. However, this is so incredibly different than the Hebrew understanding. Because for the Hebrews, the heart was the very center of all that it means to be human. All right? Um, so, so when Jesus talks about how there's all these priorities, there's 600 plus laws in the Old Testament, and Jesus is asked to prioritize, and he, and he boils them down, and he says, love God with all your heart. Okay? And then he talks about loving our neighbors as equal, to not let us off the hook, to become over-spiritual without relational love. But he says, love God with all your heart. What Jesus is talking about is he is tapping into a Hebrew understanding of what the heart is that is the greatest of all of our very being. It's an environment-changing sort of moment when he says this. Ancient Jews had no concept of, um, of what the brain was or what it did. In fact, um, when, when they spoke of the heart, they were speaking of the inner, the inner core of the person, but often heart and mind were, were used interchangeably, and the mind did not originate in the head. So even to love God with all your heart and soul and mind, um, the, the, the mind still originated from the heart, not the head, because they didn't understand what the brain organ did. This should not shock us, okay? <laughs> we had progressive revelation of, of the world, of understanding and science and God, God's work in it. 
Um, but, but so the heart was the center inner core from which everything flowed. Physically, yes, but also spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. So, um, so let's see. I'm horrible at circles, but we're going to give it a shot because it's the easiest of all the shapes. All right, so we're going to do a little, a little Venn diagram here if I can. So in, in the Hebrew, oh, this is the hardest one. That's great. Yeah, okay. So, so in, in the Hebrew understanding, um, there were like three components that kind of encapsulated what, what this whole thing is. Um, the mind, the emotions, and the will. All right? The mind, the emotions, and the will. I'm going to change markers here. Okay. So the mind is the world of thoughts. The emotions is the world of feelings, okay, and the will um, is the source of our intentions, all right? How we think, how we feel, what we do. Got it? Okay, so, um, so when, when we pay attention to this, this, this space in here, all right, we're just going to play the old trope. There we go. So this space in here where all of them inter- inter- intersect, is the realm, in Hebrew understanding, the realm of the heart. And when something becomes rooted in our heart, it changes absolutely everything else. This is why we read things like Proverbs 4, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. That's not just a feeling center. That's, that's the very inner core of our very being. And when people lose their way throughout the scriptures over and over again, the prayer and the promise is renewal of the heart. Again, so we see in Psalm 51, create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So this is in the midst of, of, um, of confession in David's life, of repentance. He says, God, I need a new heart. I want to be whole again, to be made whole. And Ezekiel, when he's talking about his people who had lost their way and God's calling and promise, I'm going to give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And this encapsulates the idea of true life transformation. You have a new heart. So there's all sorts of behavior that's talked about in the scriptures, plenty of it, doing the right behaviors. But at the very core of it, underneath all of it, is the status and the posture of the human heart, okay? And so this is why it's so incredibly important. It is the center of all known human existence in the time of Jesus. Uh, so, so all of a sudden then, all of a sudden, maybe when we talk about inviting Jesus into the realm of our hearts, we are talking about a phrase that can have real teeth and real meaning. Um, we know it's a helpful image that um, the spiritual or the physical ideas, right, of the component of the heart. The heart pumps blood. So, so that's the heart's job. Hopefully, are we all same page? Okay, good. Know what the heart does? Good. You passed third grade. So um, whatever is in the heart gets sent out to the furthest reaches of your bodies, the tips of your fingers, your toes, your brain. That's why this image becomes such a powerful force, even for us today. When our hearts change and become postured toward Jesus, it spreads to the tips of our fingers, to the actions we do. It spreads to our brains, to the way we think. It spreads to our toes, right, to the blood vessels behind the eyes and what we choose to lean into. 
we may only change one thing, and that one thing is opening ourselves up to the love of God and trusting that the way of Jesus is what leads us to the truth of whole life and of life forever with God. But that little change of heart, of desire, will cascade down to every fiber of our being. We, we won't always get it right, and we certainly won't be perfect, but our desire to experience and embody the love of God, that will be the thing that keeps us coming back to the center And that change will create a new environment in us. It'll create a new environment in our church community. It'll create a new environment in our workplaces. It'll create a new environment in our families and social groups. A renewed heart becomes, that is postured toward Jesus, becomes the spiritual trophic cascade that will change everything else. And this is really good news, right? Because we are so bent sometimes on fixing everything in our lives. And it's just so overwhelming. That the idea of, listen, learn to come toward Jesus and be motivated by a spirit of love. And these things, they will fall into place. It doesn't mean that they'll all be fixed. It means that you will have the right priorities in order to walk faithfully and at peace. And so, so like I said, in these areas, when, when Jesus is taking the place in this, in this realm, then all of a sudden our, our thoughts... And the, the power of our thoughts begin to, to be drawn more toward what does the kingdom of God look like in this area? And, and our thoughts become, uh, we're, we're told in the scriptures, to, to dwell on what's good and pure and worth thinking about with our time. So our thoughts become more toward the things that are worth spending time thinking about. Our feelings, they, they come up and as we experience feelings, we bring those to Jesus and say, which one of these are true and valid? Because so many of our feelings are about our own inadequacy um, or, or the guilt or the fact that, that we are going to let people down, or that we have to achieve so much, or, or whatever, or their false feelings about how others feel about us. And so, so when we check these against the truth of who God is, then we begin to, to even challenge the, accept the good feelings and challenge the feelings that are maybe not rooted in reality. And then obviously the will and intentions. When we let Jesus come into the realm of our heart, and say, I want to experience the grace, that, the grace and the fact that I am a beloved child of God. And I want to live as a child of God, which means I want to live the way of this kingdom of God. When we do that, we will actually long for and desire good and beautiful things to work toward instead of desiring to do whatever is, you know, advances us in the best or self-protects us the best or anything like that. And so, so there's just these beautiful things that start to happen that are much just deeper than kind of good Christian behavior. Let's try to be good this week. No, let's try to let Jesus deeply live in the realm of our hearts. Um, and so the byproducts that we see in the scriptures of these things, I think are really significant. Um, I love this passage from, and this is, this is a paraphrase uh, from the message translation. Um, but I love these words of Jesus. Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So there is a sense that one of the byproducts of life with Jesus rooted in our hearts is a soul and spirit that is at rest, right? That we can come and we can walk and we can deal with the pain and the sorrow of regular life, but yet there's still the, uh, the opportunity to have a spirit at rest because we know 
that we are loved and safe as we walk with God. And then the second thing is that it is about actions, and new characteristics begin to emerge from us. I love Paul's words here when he writes to the church in Galatia. Um, Notice he does the fruit of your effort is love, joy, peace, patience. You, You caught that, right? He does not say the fruit of your effort. He doesn't say if you try hard enough, these things emerge. What he says is the fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit is, is dwelling in you, if, if we are allowing the depths of our, our, our desires, our thoughts, feelings, our will to be opened up to God's heart, then the fruit that will naturally emerge and come cascading out of our lives is love, joy, peace, forbearance, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We are living by the Spirit. We're not living based on a new set of rules. We're living by the power of the Spirit, and that Spirit of love will guide us and care for us and help us to care for other people. So the key here is that these things emerge in our personal ecosystem where Jesus is at the center, not by forcing each one as a new fresh task. You might see some progress if you pick one of these each week. I've done that. I don't know. If you've been around Christian faith long enough, you've probably picked one each week and said, I'm going to try this one this week. That's great. It's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not what's going to bring the most life. Okay? Um, so the reason I believe that thinking about our lives as ecosystems for a trophic cascade um, is that we can look at all the things we want to change in our lives, and we can decide that each of them is a really valid project, and we will keep striving, and we will keep striving, and we will keep striving forever, trying to live what author Dallas Willard calls, calls the gospel of sin management, which at the end of the day, our goal is to eradicate our sin, which is not a bad goal, but it's different than life, because then, like Willard says, you can be a cabbage and a faithful Christian, as long as you're not doing anything wrong. But the goal of the way of Jesus is to do beautiful, good things led by the Spirit, not just not to do the bad things. And we have to broaden our understanding because when we talk about like good Christian living in the last 50 years, all that means is what you don't do. So you can be a rock, right? That old joke from the 50s, don't drink, smoke, or chew, and don't date girls that do. Like, we have got to have a more robust Christian faith. Y'all? Like, we got to have a faith that looks like Jesus, doesn't just look like not doing bad stuff. That's a very, very vanilla faith. And so, so there's beauty here of saying that, that when our hearts can rest in Jesus, that our desires actually change. So instead of fighting our desires all the time and trying to do these things, our, our whole being becomes transformed by the power of grace, and then we live as new people with new desires, with new ways of thinking, with new feelings. I'm, I know that this can sound very, like, heady and easy, and that's not the goal. The goal is to say that grace is more powerful as a life transformation tool than any amount of bootstraps challenge. Grace will always win out because God's power is more powerful than your effort. Flat out. And I uh, you know, th- this doesn't mean that it's easy. There is plenty of death, right? You notice that when the wolves were introduced, like, they killed off some things? <laughs> like, there is, when, when, when we truly introduce Jesus to the deepest realms of who we are, instead of living at the Christian life at, at a surface level, when we do that, there are things that are going to die. 
There will be things that have to die. Selfish behavior, toxic ways of relating to other people, thought patterns that are unhelpful, and many other things. They, they will die off, but, but they'll die off because Jesus is creating a new environment where they no longer thrive. And there's beauty there because all of a sudden our heart desires are shifting, like I just said. Um, the feelings that we give power to are shifting. And it creates space for newness and beauty and compassion and community to blossom in all these ways. But God is the one bringing the change. And that makes a huge difference. That's why Jesus says, Jesus defines a trophic cascade for us right here in Matthew 5. When um, he says, but seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness, right ways of living. That's what righteousness means. Okay? Righteousness is not self-righteousness, and it's not something that looks holy. Righteousness literally means right ways of living. Seek first his kingdom and the ways of living that, that, that line up with who God is. And all of these things will be given to you as well. Now, here's the interesting thing about all these things. Jesus has just gotten done dropping a bomb of challenge on them. In, if you want to be challenged, read the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. Because he's just told them that they're up, up to this point. Jesus says, oh, by the way, uh, to follow me, you need to love and forgive your enemies. You've got to reject accumulation. You need to care for the poor. You need to not give in to temptation. And you need to trust in the middle of anxiety. Like, this is hard stuff, right? Ain't nobody got time for that. These are a hard list to follow. And so he follows that up and he says, hold on. You're getting overwhelmed. Listen, seek, seek the kingdom of God. Seek the heart of God that is founded on grace. And these things, you will find that you have strength because I will give you my spirit. He promises them later. Okay, that's such good news. So he's saying, you, you have to start with just wanting, just wanting this to be your new center. And you will see what happens. We simply come forward. And it's not just about us as individuals. This is the beautiful thing about a cascading effect that Jesus has on people. We're going to chat now for just a couple minutes. When people are in community, all working toward keeping Jesus at the center of their beings, then it moves beyond somebody's personal environment, and it moves into a shared culture like a church. So we begin to normalize stories of transformation and expect that God's at work. Um, we, begin, we, we become marked more and more by genuine hearts of radical love and humility and hope. We inspire each other toward compassion and toward new levels of personal growth and goodness that are rooted in Jesus. And we start believing that the Spirit really can change people. And so, so there's something, and it goes on from there. I love Jesus' words in uh, the book of Acts. This is right before he leaves them, gives them his spirit. He says, I'm going away, but here's the thing. I'm going to give you my spirit, and that's going to empower you. And check this out. You receive power when the spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right? And in Judea and Samaria, and then eventually the ends of the earth, all right? So he says, by the way, this thing is going to start spilling out of you, the love of God through the power of, of my presence and first, it's going to look like an impact on the people that look like you and live near you. And then it's going to have an impact on the people that look like you and live a little further away. And then it's going to have an impact on the people that don't look like you, don't have similarities, and live far away. And before you know it, it's going to reach the entire earth, cascading out. All right? There's this beautiful image that this is what happens when Jesus is the center of a movement and when we take it seriously. It's, I love it. <clears throat> so... I'm going to give you three super practical things because some people, um, this is what you thrive on. And so that's totally fair. So if you need really, really practical takeaways from, from a conversation like this, here's what I'm inviting you to do. And we need to go back to basics sometimes, friends. So first steps, to introduce Jesus into our environment. 
in order to change and be transformed in lots of unexpected ways. We have to start with being, not doing, okay? So we have to start by embracing presence with God. Learn. Learn to sit in silence and stillness with God. God has made us for this. When we take time to just be present and be loved by God, we find that we are such better people. We are reminded of how loved we are. We relate to one another more slowly and more intentionally. All of these things, even just from a few moments of silence and stillness, have profound effects scientifically and spiritually. And so we start by just being with God more often, taking time to just be still. But we can't just be with a God that we don't truly know yet. So we have to also, with along, right along with this, we have to get to know the real Jesus. So what that means is that we need to actually get into the Gospels and understand the heart of Jesus because many of us have been kind of pitched a kind of a false Jesus that doesn't really look a lot like the Jesus that we see in the Gospels. So we need to, to lean in. So we, we, we take time to just be with Jesus, but we also lean in. What is the way of Jesus? What are the values of Jesus? What is this kingdom of God that Jesus tells us to, to bank the, or to bet the house on? What is it worth? And, and we begin to all of a sudden see this beauty of this, this very, very um, multifaceted kingdom emerging. And then we have to not let it stay alone. So we, we learn to intentionally process discipleship with others in community. That means inviting others to listen and to speak into our lives. So we find people, whether that's, and in the coming weeks and months, we're going to be reminding you of some of the things happening in the fall and winter. That means um, getting rooted in a community where you can actually dialogue about these things. It means maybe starting um, a triad, a discipleship triad, where you have coffee with a couple people each week or tea um, or that dandelion stuff that I tried this morning that is... Um, Rob and Cammie, are you, if, you're, if you're on Zoom, they're traveling right now. If you're on Zoom, not a fan of that stuff. Um, but thanks for the donation. Uh, but so we, we give each other a hard time in a lot of ways. Uh, so anyways, you've got to share this journey with other people. You've got to sit down and actually, actually not just keep it all inside um, because this is how we learn and how we let other people say, here's where I see God at work in you through this. So there's a lot of beauty there. Um, but this morning, don't get too sidetracked from that first step of discipleship. Open your heart to Jesus. I'm sounding like an old school preacher this morning. Like, sometimes we just need to hear that. Like, no more to-do lists for a bit. Just open your heart and spirit to Jesus and be loved. Be reminded that you're created in God's image. That you are worth infinite levels of sacrifice and that God has declared that and, and, and let that begin to change you. Um, but don't just let Jesus into your heart once. Try it again and again, every day, every moment. This is how we learn to walk in the spirit into grace. If we are humble, we will be changed from the inside out and Jesus will challenge us to embrace a deeper transformed life and a more beautiful world now and forever, but it begins with Jesus and not with us. So if you need a final encouragement, just, oops, just hear the words of, of uh, Philippians when Paul is writing to the church of Philippi and he says, I am so confident that whoever, that he who began a good work in you is going to faithfully complete it. So God will continue to work on you if you are open in all of the beautiful ways. God will continue to bring transformation until there is wholeness one day. And we trust that. All right, let's pray. Uh, Lord, 
it can be hard to peel back enough layers to be vulnerable with you um, and to not try to compartmentalize our spiritual lives. I pray that, uh, that we would have the courage to take whatever steps we need to take to experience the fullness of life that you promised. But I pray that you would uh, surround us with people so that we might not find ourselves alone in that journey. So keep speaking to us this week, and thanks for the opportunity uh, to just be reminded that you really do want to make us new, but it's you that can do it. Amen.